Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you bang up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Now, uh, we've got a special interview for you this week, which is all kind of tied in with St. Patrick's and something quite amazing that we find out, but more about that in a few minutes. First, Niall Kitson, editor of Tech Central, joins me. Uh, I suppose the big story this week, Niall, really is poor Stephen Hawking has left us. Uh, yeah, some some nice date-related trivia for you. He was born on the anniversary of Galileo's death. He died on the anniversary of Albert Einstein's birth. And if you're in America, it's Pi Day. It's March 14th, 314. <laughs> 3.14. <laughs> Very good. I think he would have uh, appreciated that a lot. Were you were you a Stephen Hawking fan? Well, how, I mean, you know, it goes beyond fan, really. I mean, he, he is sort of the, the iconic scientist of our time, the, the great thinker of our time. And for what he has done for proving human potential in the face of adversity... I think it, it transcends science and shows what humanity can do if you focus, if you apply yourself, um, if you make good use of the time you think you have or you don't think you have left, you can accomplish great things. And I, I think that's one of the, you know, probably the most important thing we can we can learn from Stephen Hawking, um, given that he didn't quite finish his life's work. I don't think he ever would have finished his life's work, uh, such as the uh, enormity of it. But when you describe Stephen Hawking like that, I, I immediately think of somebody who's not just writing books and thinking and theorising about things. I think of somebody who's actually doing these incredible things to advance hu- humanity. And that's uh, Elon Musk. Oh, I was waiting. I was waiting on an Elon Musk reference. No, <laughs> no, we're not talking about Elon Musk this oh, week. Why? Do you, not, do you not agree that both of them are iconic in their own way? Elon Musk is an entrepreneur and an innovator, very good at picking things out and going, yes, let's go. Stephen Hawking is what they what they refer to somewhat derisively as, as basic research. He's asking the bigger questions. He was coming up with bigger answers. I mean, if you look at what he was trying to do with the, the unified theory, I mean, he was trying to reconcile the fact that Big things operate in one way, very, very small things at the subatomic level operate in another way, but there has to be a logic tying them both together. I mean, it's it's mind-bending on the basis of the premise alone, let alone exploring it. He was. I have to say, uh, I found the Stephen Hawking to be quite inspirational for me, and it has nothing to do with science. Uh, it's the fact that... You can we have this picture of Stephen Hawking just sitting the hunched over in the wheelchair and the synthetic voice and the whole thing. But it was that movie that was made recently about his life where you suddenly see him as a young man, as a teenager and in his early 20s and he's running around as happy and healthy as anybody. And at 22 years of age, he was uh, uh, told that he had motor neuron disease and was given something like two years to live. And I'm happy to say that that was 53 years ago. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. It, and, you know, again, it speaks to that idea of, you know, the human will, the human spirit and application. And this is, you know, it's a testament to the man that, you know, he didn't succumb um, to that condition uh, mentally, if, if you know what I mean. That, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a, uh, his work will be an example to scientists. I think his determination is an example to everyone. Well, I think one example that he gave to scientists is his book, not A Brief History of Time, but the book A Briefer History of Time. Do you know this book? No. Essentially, okay, hit me up. Essentially what he did, and I read this and it was brilliant. Essentially what he went, uh, he said, okay, so Brief History of Time, there's a lot of stuff in that. Uh, let me dumb it down a bit. <laughs> So that's what he did. He dumbed it down and he just tried to explain things even more simply just to get the basic concept across. And he called that book a briefer history of time. And I read it and I was able to understand some of it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not I'm not saying that I'm that clever, but it was an absolute fascinating read. And you kind of get into more of the detail because everybody knows kind of the headlines about what Stephen Hawking and his theories and its time and com- compression and space and stuff like that. Uh, the, the, the actual main book itself might be a little bit too heavy, but a briefer history of time. I absolutely recommend it. Download it from uh, Amazon in honor of our Stephen. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Many times on the programme, we have spoken about machine learning and natural language processing, an amazing area. However, this week we're asking, are those machines clever enough to speak Irish? It's shocked and Nagelga week. So Niall Kitson met with Dr. Theresa Lynn at the ADAPT Centre to get a rather surprising answer to that question. So, Teresa, I guess to jump into our conversation, there's a couple of things that inform our culture. And I think Irish is particularly interesting, the the Irish character, because we've grown up with such a very strong attachment to our mythology and to stories from Cúculán all the way up through to the the Resistance, all the way up to, I guess, now the Celtic Tiger. We've all mythologized these periods in history to a certain extent. And yet the Irish language feels somewhat left behind to the extent that there is this idea that Irish is a dead language. So I'm sure you would counter that by saying uh, it absolutely is not. Would that be right? Yes, I'd agree with that. It absolutely is not. Um, Yeah, you're supposed to raise a good issue there with um, there are many facets of Irish culture um, the old stories and what we what we carry through families and pass on through generations. A lot of people are happy to hold on to that as part of being Irish um, for some reason, and there's a lot of theories around it. Um, the Irish language has sort of been dropped off, and sadly, in a lot of spaces over generations, negative perceptions have passed through generations. And often the next generation doesn't question why, they just accept this as a belief that it's um, a waste of time in school and we should do something like Italian or Spanish and so on. Um, And these stories and narratives pass through generations without being challenged um, and then we end up where we are today. Um, and yeah, it's a good question. Why is the same now? Why do we not just get rid of our old, our old stories about our connection to the Celts or um, Newgrange or whatever? Um, and I find you'll notice it more if you if you live overseas, if you if you've lived abroad, 
um, and people are interested in Ireland and what what they relate to. Um, some people will will start reattaching themselves to Irish language and realizing that actually it is uh, part of your culture in the same way that these old stories are. Um, and often that can change a mindset, but not all of us have the opportunity to live abroad. <laughs> and so um, it's a case of trying to for me and for my work is trying to normalize the use of Irish so that it doesn't become this sort of antique that's wheeled out you know that's something to look at or talk about um and then ignore like it's actually functional and when we're in our often this applies to most things in our daily lives we're in a bubble we're in a bubble of who we spend time with who we work with even on our social networks who do we follow and our our facebook connections um and so in this bubble you can conclude and say oh nobody speaks irish just because your small bubble doesn't you know or who you've chosen to follow and that group then reaffirms your your theory but actually if you branch out there and you go beyond that you'll see that there are actually a lot of people using Irish and holding on to that for their identity just as other people would um, with relation to the old cultural ideas and the old myths and legends. Yeah I think confirmation bias plays a a tremendous role in this sort of as you say the creation of bubbles and I think uh, social media has been particularly damaging for creating these bubbles and, and reinforcing sort of erroneous opinions but i think one of the nice things about social media is that once you find what they call in marketing your your tribe you do find that language evolves and it becomes much more um much more fluid in in the sense that people incorporate slang people sort of are incorporating irish into entire conversation so tell us a little bit more about how irish is I guess performing through social media is probably not the most eloquent way of putting it, but you get the idea. Yeah, um, that's true. So there's actually two sides to social media. There's the dark side, like that, where we've confirmation bias and we get into a bubble. Um, And then the other side is where you can be exposed to ideas and uh, concepts and people who you might never have come across before. Um, And this is where I find it really helps minority languages, in particular Irish, to develop and grow because um, you, you find that people are exposed to certain things that they might have not seen before. So um, they might see Irish language used on a, um, a Twitter account um, by <laughs> some company and say, oh, right, look at that, like Mattress Mick, I got him to, to tweet an Irish once. And suddenly people are like, OK, right, so Irish isn't that removed from mattresses, right? <laughs> or normal living. Um, or you might find um, that... Well, what we find is it's very easy to sort of create a bigger network and to to connect with people who you otherwise wouldn't have have had contact with. So, for example, there is a hashtag, uh, hashtag Gaelga, that tends to be used um, when talking about the Irish language, not necessarily that the the tweets are in Irish. Um, And through these type of things, you can promote events, you can can promote... uh, Podcasts, you can promote books and bring groups of people together who otherwise wouldn't have known each other. And I think this is particularly important, not just in Ireland, but in other countries it's been shown that um, often you'll have Irish language speakers maybe in pockets. So they could be regionalised. You could have um, in the Geltacht areas, the small urban groups. Um, and 
they might not have connected before without this social media connection. Um, and to be able to have this online community, and it's not just within Ireland, um, like this is across the world, we can actually, um, with our technology, we're able to track conversations then through Twitter, um, through uh, Twitter users who are using Irish language, so we can use language identifier and then geolocation to actually see where these conversations are happening across the world. So it's bringing those communities together. Um, and in that way, it's supporting the language. So it, it's that other side of social media is actually helping to support and, and to connect language um, and showing it like through these figures that we're able to actually present. It's sort of challenging that myth, like completely uh, debunking these myths to say it's not a dead language. Like, look, at these are the numbers of people who are using it and growing. They're growing. I think in looking at some of the heat maps that are that are there. I found it very interesting to see the concentration of where Irish is spoken because I would have expected you know, dark red circles in the Gaeltacht and sort of filtering mm-hmm. out everywhere, but mm-hmm. that's not really the way that the distribution works. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I love that. That's the heat map on the TEDx talk that you're referring to. Yeah, I love that heat map because that was a surprise even for me. And, you know, I would have more of an idea of what's going on in the Irish language circles. Um, I think what it shows is, I mean, you would say, okay should be in the Gaeltacht regions, but maybe older generations of the Gaeltacht regions might not be on Twitter. Maybe they're not using um, social media in the same way. So that can that can alter that theory that you would have because we have to remember that just because we're looking at Twitter statistics doesn't mean that this is all Irish speakers in the country. They're just representative. Um, so the distribution would be different then based on sort of the, the demographic that would be on Twitter. So, um, yeah, you'll find, but the urban centres, obviously Dublin was a huge urban centre and, and there was, um, that was indicative on the heat map. But what I loved was that it covered the entire country. Um, nor- and we have the map for north and south as well. Um, and many regional areas. And this will show, you'll have, obviously, schoolgoers are going to be on Twitter as well. Um, but I think it's, it's fantastic because there's al- al- always this belief if we see... Um, a map, like if you look on Wikipedia and there's a map there of the um, distribution of Irish speakers, you'll always see the dark areas in the Gaeltacht region and then you just assume, well, the rest of the country, just here and there, there's the odd person flying a flag for Irish and that's not actually the case. Um, and well, I guess one of the interesting things about Twitter is that it's such a transient medium that people think so quickly before they tweet you get to see how people are approaching language, be it through text speak, be it through, you know, compressing idioms, that sort of thing, or, or again, slang. So how are we seeing Irish and English intermingle? Is it a, an easy marriage? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. So like you said, um, text on tweets or online just in general it's known as in our field as user generated content and it's uh, known as noisy text so you're going to have misspellings you're going to have in the case of Irish dropping fathers and contractions so that's like shortening of words maybe dropping out um, apostrophes and so on Um, and then maybe using uh, phonetic spelling not so much now because we've increased the character count on, on Twitter but um, we, we do have we can see that so we, we did a, a Kevin Scannell and I did a co- um, study on this a couple of years ago to to do an analysis on the type of language that is uh, the type of yeah the type of language that's been used on Twitter so how has the Irish language sort of evolved is it evolving and is it changing and 
what we've shown is that it actually changes and evolves just like any other modern language. Um, and in my field, um, I work with people all over the world on other languages, so we compare our work and, yeah, just it exhibits the same behaviour as any other language. So, um, And that's what I love about it. I love that it, we can't control language and this idea that it's this old, uh, again, antique thing that just sits there and doesn't change and it is as it is. It, it actually isn't like it's it's evolving. There's new words coming up all the time. Um, people are switching in, as you were alluding to, to switching in between English and Irish. And that's perfectly normal because that happens in um, spoken language anyway. Um, and this is this is one interesting part of doing text analysis on online content. It actually exhibits um, similar behaviour to uh, recordings of speech. So say for the example in terms of this code switching, which is switching between one language and another. In the context of the Irish language, most studies that have been done to date has actually been on transcriptions of spoken uh, Irish and not on text because code switching wouldn't really have occurred in your average um, article in Irish or news article or report or whatever because this is um, what we would call like structured, well-edited grammatical um, text. Um, but in tweets, people have a license to do whatever they want with the language. So that's been really interesting. This is a latest study that we have. It's not yet published, but um, we have found that we've... Yeah, we've just again found that with the code switching, um, it exhibits, you know, Irish and English switching is the same as you would in English to Spanish or Arabic to French and so on. Um, it's a perfectly natural phenomenon for languages, especially when you have minority language and a major language living side by side. Um, and a really interesting thing that I came across when I was doing the research in this was um, just recently in the Netherlands, there's been a PhD published on code switching between um, Latin and Irish in old medieval Irish texts. So this is the, the uh, monks who were transcribing and they would switch between Latin and Irish. So this idea that it's this new thing that is sort of polluting the language and whatever, I mean, that's it's very insular and it's um, thinking and actually it go, it's going on internationally and it's been going on for hundreds of years, so it's just perfectly normal. Um, and I, I, I love code switching because actually... Um, sometimes I think you can get you can get a better effect if you switch into English for some words. Um, so Irish would suit better maybe in some contexts for other ways. And then personally, because sometimes I can't think of my feet, um, my Irish, spoken Irish wouldn't be native level. So if I throw in an English word, I can continue on the conversation and communication still there. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I'm all in favour of code switching, and most people are, and they and they would be open to it because they see this is just a, a natural part of language use. Yeah, I know there's uh, often a, a natural pushback at the political level again from from language purists. I know in France there was massive debate over what they called Franglish, where phrases like "le weekend" were were creeping into things, and there was this um, tremendous concern about language purity. Um, and I think that at a technical level, that presents a very interesting problem for machine translation, where you're trying to come, come up with an algorithm that will translate something accurately. But when you have you know, a Creole tongue or if you have a, a code switching going on, it does present a unique challenge. Um, so 
how is technology uh, embracing this problem? Because it, it is something that, you know, for people learning a language or trying to formulate policy in, a, in, a, in another country, it is a very significant barrier. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. And actually, my earliest experience of working with this was uh, several years ago. I worked in Australia and we developed a machine translation system for Filipino to English. Now, that was rule-based, so that was before this machine learning sort of approach and data-driven approaches came into play. Um, but in the Philippines, and this is even from the level of the president, there's a lot of code switching. So even back then, it became an issue for NLP, for natural language processing. Um, and a different approach would have been taken back then in that we, we developed an English chunker. So it was sort of like a, a parser that would say, OK, this is a string of English and we can set that aside and then reinsert it at the end when we figured everything else out. Um, what happens now with the machine learning uh, approach, which is obviously data driven, um, you need to sort of involve various different techniques. So if you don't, and this is in the case of English and Irish, if you don't have a lot of data to work with, because obviously these systems being data driven, the smarter, the more data they've, they're given to learn patterns from, then the smarter they are. But when you come up against uh, Irish, English as a pair, uh, you, you wouldn't have as much data to go from. Um, now, we haven't done, we're, we're working on machine translation actually as well for the Department of uh, Culture Heritage and Gale Talks. Um, we haven't come across this issue because we're working with the, the text that they uh, translate within the department. So, and that's um, staff reports, articles, and so like that. Um, when it comes to our attempts to translate in tweets in the future, yes, it will be a problem. And this is where the work that Kevin and I are doing on code switching will come in. So um, you can, what you can do these days in machine translation systems, you can, you can create hybrid systems. So it's sort of benefiting from the rule-based approach. And so that's linguistically informed. Um, based on the type of work that Kevin and I are doing. And you can also use the data-driven driven approach so they complement each other. So when you're working with a rules-based approach, you you're effectively have sort of a, one dictionary, another dictionary, and the, and the rules of grammar to work with. How do, how do you find those rules map onto each other? I mean, are, are there you know, blank spaces where, look, there's just no equivalent in English or in Irish to work with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, rules-based, and this is probably why it's moved so significantly since since machine. If we're talking about machine translation in particular, um, moved so significantly and improved so much recently after having moved from rule-based to statistical measures. So, um, rule-based takes a long time to create a system, and like talking could be up to ten years to create a system, depending on how many resources you have. And um, we have to encode rules for the language, the mapping rules. And it's very difficult to actually cover all possibilities. You think you've covered it, and then you try the system out, and you say, actually, no. Well, you think, oh, is this an exceptional case? No, it's not an exceptional case, and you carry on. Um, and so rule-based is very difficult, but it can be very accurate. And so this is the difference between this and statistical methods. Statistical methods are fast and easy, um, but they can fall down on certain elements that are niche to a language and quirky about a language, and that's something that only the rules might be able to capture. So this hybrid approach is um, often very useful. Now, it depends on the language, but particularly for Irish, a hybrid approach would be an important factor. And then, of course, you've also got... um sort of um, blocks of meaning where you where you have colloquialisms and that mm. sort of thing. Um, so how do you parse out, um, uh, say, 
phrases as opposed to individual words which might have a, an inverse meaning yeah um so there's a few different areas of that so one particular area is the study of multi-word expressions and so under multi-word expressions you would cover idioms um verbal phrases um particle particles uh, light verb constructions like say make a decision so where the meaning actually doesn't come from the verb make it comes from the noun decision okay so make and decision have to be together uh, like hold and hold up there's a difference you need to make sure that the computer knows that the the next word up is actually part of this unit that needs to either be translated or or interpreted. And so that's the work that I'm doing with one of um, my PhD students who just started this uh, year and is funded by the Department of uh, Cultural Heritage in the Gaeltacht. We're looking at um, attempting to um, automate the... uh, recognition of multi-word expressions now it's difficult work because you have to do a lot of linguistic research (laughs) at the forefront so and it's another issue for working with irish is actually a major lacking in just pure linguistic research the fundamental linguistic research and so it's a mixture between say you could have a database of idioms but then also if you could you can train systems to classify words and sort of recognize that they might be multi-word units and so again that's sort of a hybrid approach that that would be taken um this all comes under the um umbrella if you like of syntactic parsing so um syntax is when you're talking about the structure of a sentence so how the words fit together um, and then parsing is sort of getting the sentence and breaking it up. And, and um, what I did actually in my PhD was develop a system that would automatically recognise the structure of a sentence. So once you've done that and you can dive down into the multi-word expressions that can feed into systems like machine translation systems, question answering systems, uh, summarisation tools and so on. So if somebody wants to track the research that's going on in Ireland at the moment, um, what kind of projects are exciting you right now? Uh, with regards to Irish language? Um, yeah, we have a number of projects there. Now, it's not just all happening in um, in DCU either. We have some colleagues in, in Trinity who are working on speech synthesis um, and then um, moving into speech recognition, which is great. Um, and then there's other work done on, on the rule-based uh, machine translation. That's here in Trinity. Uh, and what we're looking at in DCU is a multiple, <laughs> multiple projects of the machine translation that we're doing for um, the department again but we're also doing work for the European Commission where they're trying to improve um, public administration um, translation systems and that's a European project so um, we're in there as an official language and that's fantastic Um, we're also um, as part of that whole initiative um, and this might just if anybody was interested and we'd probably be knocking on doors as well in the future because these systems are data driven and we need we need data, right? We need bilingual data. Um, it's, it's a case of, and particularly for this project for the European Commission, it's going to public administration bodies to try and f- collect bilingual data that is publicly available or has been, um, there will be an open license on it because it's been funded by the taxpayer, that we need to collect all of that and clean it and pre-process it so that it can be used in this um, in the European machine translation systems. And then we'll also benefit it from here. The government here will benefit from that too. Um, so that's a really exciting project. It's a big undertaking, huge one, but um, yeah, it's a really interesting one. And again, the social media work that Kevin and I are, are doing, um, particularly at the moment on the code switching, 
um, that's another good one. So hopefully that paper will be published this year. <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess watch the space, yeah. And that was Niall Kitson talking to Dr. Theresa Lynn at the ADAPT Centre. That's almost it for our show this week. The programme is supported, as always, by irishjobs.ie. For the latest jobs from IT recruiters, visit techcentral.ie forward slash jobs. That address again is techcentral.ie forward slash jobs, powered by Irish Jobs. Of course, you can also get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie, or you can listen to our show every week online or Fridays at 5pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, for myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, have a wonderful St. Patrick's weekend. I'll be talking to you next week. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.